This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. We pray that in your salvation of us and the promise that you will finish what you start in us, that this this reading of your word, this preaching of your scriptures, the, the chewing on it this week in community, we pray that you would shine your light and, and water your word and cause fruit to grow. In your name we pray, amen. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna read James chapter one, verses one and two, and verses nine through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we're studying the book of James uh, together during our sermon time. Uh, James is the author. James was uh, one of the four pillars of the New Testament church. And more specifically, he was the bishop uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, James, as a letter, was the first New Testament book uh, written. Uh, the audience, uh, as the, uh, the, the scripture reading clearly represented and identified, the audience of this first book uh, by James is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to the 12 tribes in the scattering. And he says, greetings. Uh, it's an easily uh, validated historical fact. Both the Bible speaks to this reality and, and his, uh, Jewish historians and Roman historians uh, speak to the fact that many of the Jewish elites, many of the Jewish radicals uh, who had not converted to Christianity, uh, many of them were persecuting and, and murdering uh, Christians in Jerusalem and beyond. And many Jerusalem Christians were scattered and dispersed and in a time without electronic banking, in a time without mutual funds, in a time where your wealth tended to have to walk with you, uh, uh, being scattered, running for your life, usually meant uh, that you were much poorer wherever you landed compared to what you had in Jerusalem. James is uh, the author, and to his previous flock, his current flock that is dispersed and scattered, He writes this letter, and and I think James, when he says to the 12 tribes dispersed or scattered, I think he's thinking geographically and relationally. I think he's writing to those who have literally been scattered, and and there's also still some in Jerusalem with him, and they feel scattered. Many of their friends and family they've lived life with for generation after generation after generation. They're dead. They're gone. They're gone. They're just missing. And and so we've been going through the book of James thread by thread or or topic by topic. And so far we've covered trials and troubles, uh, uh, testings, uh, temptations. We've covered pure religion. We've covered human speech. 
And we've covered uh, the judging of believers at Jesus' return. And this morning, we're going to begin another major thread, a thread that may take much of the summer, the thread of the rich and the poor, the thread of the social elites and the social outcasts. Uh, There's uh, two much longer passages in James, one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 5. We're going to get into it in the coming weeks. And in those passages, James talks about how the poor and the rich are to interact with one another in community, both the community in which they live and the community of the church. But for the first text in this thread, our first text, the primary text for James, the foundational text for understanding rich and poor is in front of us. It's verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. So we're studying this book thread by thread or, or topic by topic. The visual I want you to have for the entire series is that of an interwoven rope. It's a rope with several unique strands. It's a, it's a rope with several threads, and they're woven together. And so what we are essentially doing is we're taking one strand at a time and studying it. That's what I mean by we're going thread by thread. If you were here for the Proverbs series, the picture I continued to give you of that book of wisdom was it's more like a quilt. It's more uh, like a tapestry. It's like seven times as long and it hits like almost seven times as many topics as the book of James. And so that one, it was still a thread that we would study, but we would say that it was interwoven in a tapestry. This is more like a six-strand rope. One of the things I feel like I said over and over in our study of Proverbs that I have not said as much in James is that it's really important to ask yourself, how do the various topics interrelate with one another? We have to ask ourselves, is James trying to communicate something by how he's weaving the various topics together? Or more specifically, it's actually going to set up our outline for the entire morning. This is the question. Why does James put this short foundational text on being poor or being rich? Why does he put it right in the middle of his longest section on trials and temptations? So chapter 1 is the first uh, 15 or 16 verses is predominantly about trials and temptation. And right in the middle of it, James just throws these three verses on being rich and poor. So I want to unpack that reality, not just 9 through 11, but the context around it. I want to unpack the text this way. The trials of poverty and wealth, the temptation trends for the poor and the rich, the temptation for the rich and the poor, and the safeguard for both personally applied. Now you're thinking four points. Is he crazy? There are four short points. Um, hopefully it'll be a little, even a little less than what a normal sermon is. But the trials of poverty and wealth, the temptation trends for the poor and the rich, The temptation for the rich and the poor and the safeguards for both personally applied. So let me ask you this. Let's just start out this way. What's the best case scenario? What's optimal? When it comes to money and possessions, what's best case scenario biblically? Especially if you look at that question from the angle of temptation to sin. What's the best case scenario? Here's the answer. It is not having less than you need. Being poor is not optimal. And not having more than you need is not optimal from a biblical perspective. Said positively, what's optimal? Having what you need, not more and not less. That is what the Bible says is optimal. Biblically, the best case scenario, what the wise person would choose, what the wise person prays for is having what they need, 
Nothing more, nothing less. Now, I'm not asking what's right and what's wrong. I'm just saying what's the best case scenario when it comes to sin and temptation. I'm not asking what, what is more blessed or less blessed by God. I'm not saying, you know, where will God put you in life if he really loves you? I'm simply saying that the Bible presents what you might call a middle-class reality as being best or optimal or safest when thinking about money and possessions from a temptation to sin perspective. As you read along through chapter one, you get eight verses in a row on trials and troubles and testing. And the, the guts of it is this, be steadfast and prayerful in hardships. And then all of a sudden you come to verses nine through 11 and you have a command for the poor and a command for the rich. And you have a five-fold reminder that all people and all money will one day perish. And then James just goes right back in 12 to 15, as if 9 and 11 never happened. And he goes back to trials and troubles and, and threat. And he actually begins to teach the reality that that word for trial, trouble, uh, testing, and temptation, they're all the same Greek word. And you just have to translate it right compared to the context. And so in, in 9 through 11, he goes from trials in 1 through 8 to temptation in 12 through 15. And his, his, the question has to be come to us, why? Why did he transition this way? Why does he interrupt his trials thread with the start of the rich and the poor thread? And this is why. Because poverty and wealth are two of the greatest trials we will ever face in our lives. And poverty and wealth bring about unique temptations to sin. And James, Pastor James, gives his scattered flock commands on how to live regardless of where God has them. So let's just say that you're not convinced that poverty and wealth are both trials. Let's say you're not convinced that they're both optimal from a temptation to sin perspective. Agur was one of the contributors to the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom in the Old Testament. And he wrote this, it's his prayer to God. It's, it's the prayer of a wise man. It's the prayer of a wise one submitting to God uh, what he knew to be optimal and best. Listen to his prayer, chapter 30, verse 7 in Proverbs. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Number one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. So Agur says, first of all, would you please remove hypocrisy from me? Number two, feed me with the food that is needful for me. And then he directly says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty is a biblical word for having less than you need. Riches is a biblical word for having more than you need. Now, and we're going to cover his rationale in a minute, but just look at the assumption of the text that God is in sovereign control over whether you're rich or you're poor. So that's humility. But then in wisdom, he asks for, if you will, a middle-class life. And we'll talk more in a moment as to why that is. So there are two trials as it relates to money. One of them is being poor and one of them is being rich. And if James is saying on the other side of every trial is a temptation, if he's saying trials are like a coin, one side's a trial and a test and the other side's a temptation to sin, he is insinuating by where he puts this in the text that there are temptation trends for the poor and for the rich. And so we'll talk about that now, let's think about the trends of temptations for the poor and the rich. I'm saying trends. They're not 
exclusive temptations, but, but they're trends. So I'm just going to quickly kind of rattle off the temptation trends I, I know from my own life and I see in pastoring you all, the temptation trends that come to the lowly brother or sister and the temptation trends that come to rich believers. I would summarize the trends for my lowly brothers and sisters this way, stealing, stinginess, and sour living. I think lowly brothers and sisters are particularly susceptible to stealing, stinginess, and sour living. First temptation, stealing, taking what is not rightfully yours or mine. Remember Agur, all right? He's the wise guy of Proverbs 30. He's dreaming of the middle class life, and he says, don't give me poverty. I'm like, amen, write that in the prayer journal. And then he says, don't give me riches. I'm like, oh, I'm out. And uh, his rationale for, for not wanting to be poor is found in verse nine. He says, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's actually pretty simple if you think about it. Those who don't have what they need who are poor have a stronger temptation to steal and thereby profane or dishonor or shame the name of God. Whether it's something as small as putting Coke in a water cup at, at, uh, well, I put Sprite because they can't tell. They're both clear. Uh, Sprite in a water cup at Chipotle or not recording all of your wages and cash tips to the IRS. That There is a larger temptation. Biblically, the Bible says a larger temptation for those who have less than they need to steal. And I think a lot of you really nice people like me, you're sitting out there right now saying, I would consider myself poor, but I'm not a thief. I don't steal and I'm not a robber. All right? Second temptation, stinginess. Not being generous. There's a text in the Old Testament that's addressed to God's people during a time of hardship and want. And God, through the prophet Malachi, says to the people, will man rob God? You're robbing me. And the people say, how in the world are we robbing you? And God says, in your tithes and your offerings. The Bible Old Testament and New Testament, both are really clear. God commands for us to bring the first 10% of our income to him. And this 10% symbolizes that all of our life is his. All of our relationships are his. All of our talents are his. All of our time is his. Everything is his, symbolized in the first fruits. But God is not done there. He says that in addition to this, he will direct us in our hearts and in community to give beyond the 10% of our offerings. They're called free will, choice, contribution offerings in the Bible. And he's saying above and beyond the tithe, you will give these contributions. And God says, when you're not giving the tithe and the contributions, you're robbing me. You're stealing from me. And he says, through Malachi, bring in the full tithe and see. Put me, the Lord of hosts, to the test. See if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings on you. And I know from my own life, as I've gone through various seasons of poverty, two that I could speak to, that a major temptation in that trial is stinginess. Not looking for places to give, not expecting God to direct my heart to give a free will offering to someone in need around me. Stealing and stinginess. But lastly, sour living. To live in despair and despondency. 
I was uh, talking to a sister this week, a sister in quotes, the way James uses it for the body of Christ. And, and she was telling me about a mutual friend that we have who's going through some financially difficult times. And my, my sister uh, said to me that when the phone rings and, and uh, the caller ID indicates that it's this friend of ours, she says that she cringes because she doesn't want to answer it. And we kept talking about it. And I kept asking questions, trying to figure out why, what's going on. And she said, it's not that I'm afraid to weep with her as she weeps. And it's not because I don't feel compassion for her. And it's not because I haven't tried to help her and will help her more, but, but our friend has found life in her despair. She has made a home in her despondency. She makes a bigger deal out of her poverty than the rich people in our church do out of their wealth. And I said, is she kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Sort of harumphing around day and night? It's going to rain today. Despair and despondency. So some of the temptations that are in the trial of poverty, some of the temptations that are the other side of the coin of poverty are stealing, stindiness, and and sour living. James doesn't give any. He just gives an exhortation as to defend ourselves against them. So you can make a list of 20 of them. I just have given you three, but I think there's one final temptation that the poor have. I think it's the temptation that the poor have. But since they share it with the rich and the middle class, I'm gonna just say it quickly and unpack it Later, lowly brothers, poor believers are tempted to think that they can find life in money. When I am in periods and seasons of want and poverty in my life, I think money is the solution. Number one temptation for the poor and the rich and the middle class. All right, so the temptation trends for the rich brother, the socially elite believer. Back, back to our wise friend Agur, Proverbs 30, and his two requests. So remember, he says, take from me hypocrisy. Give me what is needful for me. Uh, don't give me poverty. I might steal and dishonor you. And then he says, don't give me riches, lest I forget your name. Verse 9, give me not riches, lest I be full. It's, it's a word for a state of glut, to be stuffed to be fat and happy. He says, don't make me fat and happy because I'll deny you. And I will say, who is the Lord? Temptation, the temptation within the trial of wealth that leads to all the other temptations, hubris, pride, arrogance. Because money is deceitful and money tells you that you're something. Because the world kisses your butt and tells you that you are something. When you go to the bank, they give your kid a lollipop. When poor people go to the bank, they don't give them anything. Did you know that? (laughs) Don't get me started. I'll just leave it at that. The world kisses your butt and tells you you're something. Because your flesh, your old self, the sinful nature inside of you is dying to be something. The temptation for wealthy people is to believe that they're God. And from that, we say, who is the Lord? And once we forget there is a God, it's easy to assume that we're him. This is what Agur says. It's essentially what James says too. I'll show you in a minute. Rich people are tempted to talk too much. After all, if God and his subjects are in the room, it makes sense that God would talk. Rich people are tempted to anger more than poor in my experience because anger is a way to control and God should be in control and so we get angry. Rich people are tempted to think they're invincible 
that whatever they touch will turn to gold and whatever they plan will come true. And this is why James says in chapter four that it's the height of arrogance to make plans and not say and believe Lord willing, Lord desiring, Lord in control, talking about uppercase G, God. Rich people tend to pray less than poor people. Just some temptations. These are trends. I'm sure they're not true of you. They, they, they tend to pray less than poor people. My uh, spiritual grandfather used to frequently say to rich people, not a very good fundraiser, I might add. He, he would say to wealthy people all the time, you know why God messes with your marriage and your kids, don't you? It's because he loves you and he wants to teach you how to pray. He would say poor believers learn how to pray because they don't have money to meet every need. God messes with marriages and kids because in those arenas, we tend to learn sooner rather than later that we're not in control, we're not invincible, and we don't have the Midas touch. We're forced to pray and be needy, and all of it because God loves you. Didn't get a whole lot of big checks going that route, I can tell you that. So here it is. Here is the temptation for the rich and the poor. We covered temptation trends for the poor, temptation trends for the rich, and here is the temptation that the rich and the poor share, okay? Uh, um, uh, I'm convinced, and the the Bible teaches, that both rich believers and poor believers are susceptible to the same temptation, and that is this, the belief that we need more money. The belief that we need more money to think that the solution to our problems or to think that the key to a joyful and satisfying life, or to think that the savior of our souls will be money, more money than we currently have, or better access and use of the money that we already have. I think this is the number one temptation for rich, poor, or middle class, is future money. It's amazing, whether I talk to a poor person, a middle class brother, a rich sister, how often we all think, regardless of how much we have, that money can save us from what currently ails us. We just need a little bit more. This is a significant part of my own story, and this is particularly true of my poor friends, that we're in, when we're in the trial of poverty, that the temptation is there to decide to be determined, that we're going to take control, that we're not going to give to our kids what our parents did or didn't give to us, that we're going to be esteemed and not looked down upon, that we're going to be noticed and valued and comfortable. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, says this, it's not people with money who fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. It's not people with money that plunge themselves into ruin and destruction, It's people who desire to have money who fall into all of those horrible realities. Desiring to be rich is something poor folks, middle-class folks, and rich folks can all fall prey to. If you'll direct your attention to the text, I think for this reason, every one of us in this room has got to understand verses, uh, verse 10b, that's the second half of the verse, and 11. He, he, James in this text, we're going to cover it in a second. He, he, is, he is teaching a proactive boasting, a, a proactive glorying and a rejoicing and a finding life in uh, something that, that will free us from, from the trials and the temptations of poverty and wealth. But we'll cover those in a minute. For right now, he's telling us don't boast in, don't hope for money to give you life. He, he's explaining why we want to obey Jeremiah 9. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. 
We could say a lot from these verses, but I'll just say this. Rich people will eventually die. And money is incredibly elusive. Rich people will die and money is elusive. This is James' defense against us boasting in money or boasting in the need for money. Chapter 10, second half. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So a rich person all throughout scripture, wealth and wealthy people are compared to vegetation, which in their culture meant it was really, really delicate. Our culture, when you can only water your grass once a week, we start to get the same concept. Go a couple weeks without rain and the vegetation disappears. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. So it's talking now about the blade, the shoot, the foundation on which the flower or the fruit stands. And so the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass and its flower or its blossom or its fruit falls and its beauty perishes. And Captain Redundancy, Pastor James, in case you missed it, follows that up with this. So also will the rich man fade away. If you're keeping track, that's five words in a verse and a half that mean dying or being dead. He's trying to make a point. First, sobering news. Rich people will eventually fade away, perish, fall, wither, pass away. But but James is not just giving us some sobering news as to why we don't want to boast in or look for life in or look for soul-level solutions in money and riches. He's giving us some scary news. Not only do rich people die, just like poor people, but money is elusive. Or maybe it's better said, money as a source of life and rest and contentment is elusive. Elusive. I didn't read the last clause of verse 11. Look there now. So also will the rich fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What does that mean? Pursuit is the Greek word for journey. This is something incredibly scary. Anyone who tries to find life in money will never ever, ever arrive. They will die never reaching their destination. They will die in the midst of their pursuits. James is telling us, don't look for life and money, whether you have it or not. It is like every other idol. We were created to find life and joy and glory in relationship with God. We were created to find our purpose in knowing the Lord and knowing that he delights in steadfast love and justice. But in our sin, we try to find life other places. We try to get life from created things instead of the creator. And the Bible says that these pursuits, this journeying, uh, this is called idolatry. It's, It's looking for life in the worship of a false god. And every idol is the same. Whether it's money or sex or shopping or being really nice, every idol is the same. It promises life and joy and contentment and pleasure and salvation. And it gives us these things in small and addictive ways, but it never in full, never in an enduring way does it give us life. And that makes us think, my gosh, I'm so close. I'm almost there. It felt so good for just a second. I must not be doing this quite right. 
I'm right around the corner. This will satisfy me tomorrow. Never mind that I haven't been satisfied for 20 years of being rich, of being addicted to pornography, of shopping to make my sadness go away. Never mind for 20 years it has been elusive and I have not been able to get my fingers around it. There's a fascinating story in 1 Kings 18. It's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And they are having themselves a a fight, let's say, where they have set up two sacrifices. And they have said, uh, whichever one, whether it's it's Baal, which is an idol, or Yahweh, whoever comes through and delivers fire from heaven, that is the true God. That is the one that we want to know. That's the one we want to relate to. That is the one we want to give our lives to. And Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. He's outnumbered significantly by them. And he lets them go first. And about lunchtime, he starts to make fun of them. They're dancing around and praying and doing their rituals and and having a pretty good time doing it. It seems from the text, it talks about dancing. So there's some festive joy in it. There's some frenzy in it. And he says, listen, he must be taking a dump. He must be out shopping. Maybe he's, it says this in the text. Uh, Maybe he's amusing himself over some wild daydream. You should probably up your game. You're so close. Life is right around the corner. And, and so the, the Bible says that they begin to cut themselves with knives and they, they work themselves into a massive frenzy and to no avail, you die in the midst of your pursuits. And Elijah says, pour a bunch of water on mine. Go ahead, pour water on, fill up the trenches. Let's get that thing completely wet. And then he tells the people, get really close to the sacrifice. A simple prayer, bam, fire from heaven. He said, come get close to the sacrifice and watch what God can do. This is where you'll find life. We'll talk more about that in a little while. James is saying rich people die and money never delivers. Whether you're poor or you're rich, do not boast in money. Do not hope in money. Do not put your identity there. Now, uh, the safeguard for both personally Applied, okay? So where are we at? Every trial comes with unique temptations. James says to the scattered believers that poverty and wealth are both a trial and they both tend to come with specific types of temptation. But he says the chief temptation for everyone is the idea that you can find your security and your identity and your salvation in money. And he he says, listen, rich people are gonna die and money never delivers. And, And now go back to the very beginning of the text Verse 9, James gives us a safeguard. He gives us a way of protection. He tells the poor and the rich, he says, as you're in that trial, under that temptation, do this as the safeguard. And you have to personally apply it. You have to apply it to your specific circumstances. Rich people are supposed to do one thing with the gospel. Poor people are supposed to do another thing with the gospel. Okay, he says, look at, now look with me at verse 9. This is how the lowly brother can be steadfast in the trial of poverty. This is how the lowly brother can fight against temptations of poverty. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And then this is how the rich person can be steadfast in trial. This is how the rich person can fight against the temptations of wealth and let the rich boast in his humiliation. Now get this. This is incredibly, incredibly important to get. Both are called to 
to boast in the gospel, but they're to apply the gospel to themselves in unique and personal ways. Every one of us, rich and poor, is humbled in the gospel. We're brought low. And every one of us, rich and poor, is exalted in the gospel. We're lifted up. But Paul, or excuse me, James says to the poor brother, focus on the exaltation aspects of the gospel. It says boast in your exaltation. It's, it's literally height, rank, status. It's the word the New Testament uses for where Jesus went when he was ascended from which the spirit comes. And James is saying to lowly brothers and sisters, you're so exalted in Christ. You're a co-heir with Jesus. You're a citizen in heaven. Boast in that. Find life in that. Glory in that. Rejoice in that. And James is saying, this is your safeguard against the trials and the temptations of poverty. Who needs earthly things when they're eternally rich? Who needs to be stingy when they have the riches of Jesus? Who needs to be sour when God has placed on them an eternal and glorious rank and status? And James says, glory in your exaltation. The greatest story of generosity in all of the Bible is a poor widow who had two small coins left. And Jesus is watching her in the temple. He's about to cleanse the temple. He has already said that the temple is condemned. And he takes this this woman and he watches her, this poor widow. She takes her last two coins. She She could have kept half of her assets to herself. And she decided to give them both to Jesus. And he throws them in and he's like, I've never seen anything like that. That is amazing. And we say, okay, look, the gospel can do that to a poor person. The gospel can make a poor person radically generous. What brought that about in the heart of the woman? She was going to that place where the sacrifice was given in her place, pointing forward to Jesus, showing that God forgives. And she's just like, I've got all the wealth of heaven. I don't need these two copper coins. And to the rich brother, he says, focus on the humbling aspects of the gospel. God had to die for you. You made such a mess of your life, you couldn't fix it. You couldn't buy your way out of it. You brought nothing to the table when the God of all riches and possessions, he saved you. Not only is your money not an advantage in the kingdom, according to Jesus, it's a disadvantage. Boast in your humiliation. Boast in your being brought low in the gospel. Think about it this way. In the gospel, the son of God dies for us. He takes on our sin and shame. He absorbs the wrath of God for us. He, he, at the cross, not only does he take all of that is wrong with us and all that we've done wrong and wrong with the world, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his beauty. He gives us his love. He gives us the father's attention and heart. And, and this is what the whole gospel is. This is what the sacrifice at Mount Carmel pointed to. This is what the sacrifice at the temple pointed to. And this is what James is saying. He's saying you're all sons and daughters of the king. He's saying to to the poor person, lift up your head, you're a son of God. And he says to the rich person, lower your head, you're a son of God. You're not God. And, And he says to the poor person, Jesus died for you. And he says to the rich person, Jesus had to die for you. He says to the poor person, your chin is down, lift it up in the gospel. He says to the rich, your chin is up. Let the gospel drive it down. Now think about this. How will these two exhortations, both in the gospel, applied to the rich and then to the poor, how will this guard them against temptations? How will this protect them in the trial of what is less than optimal? 
you have a chance to talk about those things in your city group this week. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom and the brilliance of your word. I thank you for your kingdom that is folly. It is folly to the Gentiles. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. For those who want uh, worldly wisdom and to those who want worldly power, your gospel is just an upside down, inside out, not what you would expect sort of thing. And this is because it's the advancement of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would have mercy on me, a sinner. I ask that you would forgive me for how, as a poor man, I have thought I could find life and riches, and I pray you'd forgive me as a rich man how I've thought that I just need a little bit more. Would you so satisfy me in the gospel? Would you so give me life in the gospel? Would you so pour the love from your heart into my heart by the Spirit that I might be freed from these things? that I might experience joy and deliverance, that I might go out living this life full of humiliation and exaltation because of who I am in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.